Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Big week in sports. We're not going to talk Major League Baseball, although we're at the League Championship Series. We're not even talking NFL, although we're past the quarter pole. We're not talking about college football, even though we're a couple of weeks away from the BCS rankings. We got a lot of other major stuff, including a, a huge interview as far as the college sports past, present, and future. But first, let's talk about the NHL and where it is today. Our digital editor, Amy Tenery, who is so good at this stuff, coming off of a heartbreaking season of baseball. Uh, yeah. Are you a Ranger fan? Are you better in hockey? Uh, I'm more of an Islanders fan, um, but I'm willing to talk about hockey because someone has to. There you um, go. So, well put. Yeah, I mean, let's just dive right into it. What what you got this season? Well, you know, first of all, the Pittsburgh Penguins looking to re- uh, three-peat as Stanley Cup champions, not really great out of the gate. No. But the more, no, 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 <laughs> but... No, but but listen, they play 80 games, and, you know, three doesn't make a season. But mm-hmm. bottom line is that the NHL, television contract, franchise values, um, all of the issues are trending upward, but yet no Olympics in Korea. I was going to say North Korea. No, no Olympics in Korea. And uh, the NHL, I guess the challenge is to make sure that they keep the awareness up over the next couple of years. What's your perspective? Well, yeah, I think it's I think it's a real shame that you know we're not going to have a lot or any, as far as I know, NHL players participating in the Olympics. I think that um, that kind of global visibility is great for the sport. I think if you look at the NHL compared to other leagues, it does draw. Um, quite a large number of, of players, um, you know, internationally. I'm speaking anecdotally, of course, but, you know, you compare it to the NFL. Uh, NHL draws players from across the globe. So it would make sense for the NHL to promote their brand a- across the globe. This seems like a huge missed opportunity to me. And on top of that, you're, you're seeing players on social media or just making general statements uh, saying how disappointed they are uh, that, that this, they're not going to be a part of this. Um I think that a lot of hockey fans have wonderful memories from the Olympics, Miracle on Ice, of course, and it's just a shame that I I, I just don't know that the quality of play is going to be quite so high if if they're not a part of this. Well, and that's a you know there are other perspectives on this one, and sure. we'll take a minute to talk about it because Gary Bettman, uh, the longest standing commissioner of any major sport since 1993, and he's not there by accident. He understands what the business issues are and. If you if you look at the the you know some of the facts on this, they've taken a a lot of discussion and negotiation with the players' association as far as cost replacement, as far as who's going to pay for insurance and travel, as far as injuries during it. Mm-hmm. But the time zone issue is is one of the big issues as well. And the NHL uh, has uh, it may not be the Olympics, but attempted to try to figure out how to become more international. They had these series, the Canucks and the Kings playing uh, exhibition games in China this year. Uh, they're looking forward to trying to figure out what happens. Remember, the next Winter Olympics is China, so there's a kind of a double issue here. And so how do you deal with it? You know, how do you make NBC happy? Uh, how do you make sure that there are international uh, expansion of this global game from the NHL perspective? So I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not easy. No, of course not. And, and from the NHL's perspective, and, and this may be sort of 
pessimistic or callous, but you know, the players are unhappy. They don't get to play in the Olympics. Okay, well, what are they going to do? They're going to leave? No, they're not going to leave. They're going to stay and they're going to keep playing for the league. So the, the league really has the upper hand here and they're certainly playing it. Well, and, and, and frankly, if you listen to some of the owners, you know, they, what do they do? They get healthy for the second half of the season. But, sure. you know, the owners are, are uh, certainly willing to do certain things relative to Olympic athletes if it's uh, time zones and travel and insurance, all of those issues kind of added up in one big pot. But one of the positive issues is $500 million for an expansion franchise, the Vegas Golden Knights. The team started undefeated unbelievably as an expansion franchise. Uh, clearly, the opener at home is the night we record this podcast, and T-Mobile Arena is beautiful. Uh, the average ticket price for the Golden Knights off the charts. And by the way, they sold out quicker than any team except the Rangers as far as selling out seats, and they have a tremendous following now. Uh, on the ice, it looks great, but... Uh, you know, talk about the obvious as well as the off-ice healing issues involved in this as well. Yeah, it is remarkable that they were able to obviously generate as much interest as as they have. And of course, their, as you said, undefeated start helps that. Um, but as you said, we're talking about a city that's dealing, it's reeling with a, a tragedy of almost unimaginable proportions. Um, and, you know, you and I were talking a little bit before the, the podcast report, recording about a the ways that sports can kind of heal communities and bring people together. And, you know, I've been a little bit of a, a skeptic in the past. I remember, you know, when the Saints won the Super Bowl and there was a lot of talk about how that makes things right after Katrina. And I don't think that any any sports franchise or game can make things right. But if you're talking about a city that didn't have a franchise, didn't have something to, to come together with in an athletic event, um, boy, the timing is certainly right. Um, so I... I, I almost am at a loss for words. I just think that uh, if this can be something that's a net positive for the city, and I think it will be, I think that's a good thing. Power of sports, people waiting in lines to give blood, the Vegas Knights, part of that Vegas Knights community representatives, and it's very clear that the owner from the top down wanted to make a positive statement and would have anyway, mm -hmm. and just another example of how important uh, sports could be as a healer, uh, not for complete healing, but certainly to help move people in the right direction. So, Amy, thank you for your input. And, and we, we cut this a little short this week because we got a great interview for you. It is all about college sports. And Sonny Vaccaro, who's probably best known for his tenure with Nike, he signed Michael Jordan to his first sneaker deal. He left then for Adidas. Then Reebok, he founded the ABCD All-American Basketball Camp, that elite showcase of high school basketball standouts. It ran from 84 to 2007. Who? Well, Kobe, Dwight Howard, LeBron James. Um, he's the guy, frankly, who pioneered the modern college sports apparel business by paying coaches to use the Nike brand. He later worked, as we know, as you said, for as we said for Reebok and Adidas. The bottom line is he is best of anybody to talk about the FBI's case against the NCAA, the legacy, pay for play, sneaker money, players and students. We have a pretty extensive, exclusive interview with Sonny Vaccaro that may change the way you look at college athletics. Sonny Vaccaro, right now. There are a whole bunch of issues in college sports that involves Sonny directly or indirectly. It's an honor to have him. How are you? I'm fine, young fellow. Looking forward to doing this interview. 
Good. Awesome. I'm glad Sonny addresses me as young fellow. That's very important to my psyche as we go forward. So let's talk about the modern college basketball sports apparel business, obviously paying coaches to use the Nike brand, Reebok, Adidas, etc. Tell us kind of the, uh, the, the nature of how you got involved in that and realizing that that was a very key, legitimate way to take a foothold in the sports business. How did that get started? And let's give us some perspective on that. Completely by accident. As most of my life has sort of uh, unfolded over these last, you know, 78 years of it, I, I only can address how I lived it. So asking the question how, you know, the marketing started on college sports, it definitely started with Nike in 1977 when I came up with a thought that I, uh, I gave to Phil Knight and Rob Strausser, who was the uh, first in command after Phil at Nike at that time. They had really nothing to do other than in a running shoe situation. It was a very young company, $25 million in revenue, I think, at that time, where I suggested to them because they wanted to get involved in basketball. Since I had been very close and started the first high school all-star game when I was 24 years old in Pittsburgh called the Dapper Dan Ball Classic with my, my uh, childhood buddy, Pat DeCesar, I grew into an era in life of basketball camps, all-star games, and then eventually got me to this, to, to go how it started. Some kids at a camp of mine said, you know, Mr. Vaccaro, what if they did some th- different things with tennis shoes? At that time, they called them tennis shoes. And I said, what do you mean, whatever the young man name was? He said, well, you know, we wear tennis shoes everywhere, the church, church and school and, you know, play basketball in and that. And they usually look like, like the poor man's thing. Why don't they make tennis shoes? And I'm embellishing the words now. But the, the thought was the young person gave me a suggestion that tennis shoes could be more appropriate in other things too. And then 50 years later, we find out that there are stylish on them also. You wear them with tuxedos. But at that time in 1977, no one thought that. I went to Nike, introduced you know, about 14, 15 different pair of shoes that an Italian friend of mine named Bob DiRinaldo from my little hometown in Pennsylvania, some, some prototypes. I met the Nike people. They took my shoes. I never saw them again 9,000 years later. But we went to lunch, and then they start talking to me about basketball. And then I somehow in a conversation said, well, if you really want to get into basketball, why don't you just pay the college coaches, give all your shoes away to these teams free, and you'll get publicity you've never gotten before. And that's the innocence of it was. It was a mind thought by me, an idea. that if I, It was something that if I, we wouldn't have talked about. I wouldn't have gone to lunch at the, at the Chinese restaurant with them, if the, you know, if the kid wouldn't have mentioned this never would have happened in the way it happened. I guess someday someone would have started it. But mine was simply uh, a logical you know, extension of my life. Kid made an idea. I said to them, they asked me a question, pay the coaches. And basically what we did for, from 1977 to 1988, when the first all-school deal in the history of sports was signed by a shoe company and a school, was the University of Miami, no less, which Sam Jankovich who was the athletic director of, of, uh, of the University of Miami, and a young man who graduated, and at the time he called me, he was a major labor uh, union lawyer in Washington, D.C., called me and said, Mr. Vaccaro, you know, Mr. Jankovich would like to do an all-school deal. So going from me paying coaches directly 
and them wearing the shoes and the kids wearing them and selling product in those intervening 7, 12, 13 years, other than also signing Michael Jordan in the intermediate, but the college coaches were first. University of Miami is the one that changed the world with an all-school day. That's how it happened. Most of the things in my life, just like Jordan for a minute, I never knew Michael Jordan. They asked me a question. Who would I sign? How much money do we have? I said, give it to the kid. They signed Jordan. So staying on that, and then, but going back to the industry that we're not talking about, it's a multi-zillion dollar industry. Nike's one of the most successful corporations in a world, and it all started a long time ago with paying the coaches. Well, you know, the interesting piece about this is that most ideas that are good start fairly innocently and evolve from there. Can't think of a better a visionary opportunity than you and Sam getting together and, and doing all of this. Uh, you know, the bottom line too is uh, years ago you had some perspective and now you have even more um, looking back on it. What would you have changed about how the industry has evolved as far as, as, uh, as amateur kids getting paid? And I know it took O'Bannon's litigation to even begin that. So kudos to you. But, but how, how would you have raised – you, you, you wave a magic wand, you got it at your disposal, you change the industry. How do you do it? You know, if you're talking about changing now, Rick, I mean, how you do it is what happened. A major mistake was made by major players who got exposed by the federal government in a crime as opposed to illegal recruiting. The, the only way we would have had this conversation, the only thing that would have been meaningful for the next years – because we have found out in the past the most inept organization, and I say this with no bias towards the human beings, but bias towards the, the, the facility here, and the facility is the, or the, the NCAA. These people govern an operation that brings in billions of dollars by their mausoleum in Indianapolis. And I'm not making fun of them to ridicule them again. I'm just telling the truth. I don't know. You know, I can understand why the pyramids, why, why castles were built. I don't understand why that thing in Indianapolis was built, because they have no, no reason other than to protect the money that athletes generate for them to be involved at the levels they're involved. So what I've seen and what happened just two weeks ago, was some, or a week ago, I guess, you know, uh, the evolution of the next step in amateur, and, there, and that's the funny word, there is no amateur in college athletics, but they've been putting this idea in front of human beings for about 100 years, they being the answer way. The only thing I can say about it is one of the, the, the nicest things about our society are sports. The, one, of the, one of the best things, even above professional sports, is people ideologically rooting for either their school that they went to, the high school they went to, a friend that went to it, or the, the old Subway alumni trick where you just evolve into being a, a Notre Dame fan or a Pitt Panther fan if you grew up or if you were somehow connected by the umbilical cord. There's nothing better than college athletics, except there's been nothing dirtier than college athletics for a long period of time. But we fail to accept it because we love it so much. But we've come to a point in 2017 where the love has now gone into breaking laws, not rules. And I think, I think a lot's going to happen. I, I, and I hope a lot. I'm very sad that persons are getting indicted and maybe convicted. I didn't cause that. The system, by not allowing athletes to 
be upfront about it and not doing more for the athletes who are generating the money, and that's going to be maybe later in this particular program, but later in life. But O'Bannon started it. So did Kane Coulter started to a point. So did other lawsuits. You know, Jeffrey Kessler's got a couple going. But the only way anyone listens in this country is that you violate a law. Well, they, 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 they're no longer virgins now. I don't know how they protect themselves. And I'd, I'd like to, you know, and I know this will be delayed for a minute or two for your audience here, is it? But when I'm speaking, the main question I have is it took two years of investigation, and the NCAA enforcement never, ever knew this was going on. I mean, talking about head in the sand? I mean, my God. I, 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 I can't believe they either that naive, that slow, or they, in my opinion, they don't know what's happening in the world they run. Well, let's follow up on that for a minute, because I think that's really important. This is not a wake-up call. This is fundamentally different. As you said, indictments are a different kettle of fish. Um, How far does this go? Does it reach the head coaches and the programs beyond four assistant coaches? And what are the consequences of where it ultimately goes? Okay, I can forecast. I'll just deal with what we know as of today. There are certain groups that are under investigation or maybe indicted today, tomorrow, whatever. What I understand with no knowledge other than, you know, someone giving me information, that there will be more people under this particular case. But we do know some have already been indicted, some have already been let loose. So that I can react to. And I can say that these people are in a hell of a lot tougher situation than any scandal that may evolve over all of this. All, all time, okay, we've had illicit scandals in the NCAA since point-fixing in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s. We had athletes running around masquerading as, as students since the 1920s and magnified in Minnesota in 1998 when the coach told them not to go to this horrendous thing we're looking at now at North Carolina, which they don't know what the hell they're going to do. At this point, they haven't made a thing. We've had everything imaginable, imaginable but here's what we never had before the federal government. I would believe, using my own common sense and and watching this thing happen, I would believe that the low men on a totem pole, and I say that sometimes in order of wage or money earned or, or the conspiracy that they derived and who benefited the most, I would think this time for the first time ever, there are some people who may be facing going to prison for a day, a year, whatever, but a day in jail has got to be hell. Okay, so it's different than not being able to coach for nine games. It's different from being fired as an assistant coach. It's jail. This is what legally I, we all let it believe is happening. And by other people's logic and reasoning and my logic, I would assume there would be other people maybe involved, even if there isn't. What it did was not shine a black light on college basketball. It showed a spotlight on college athletics. Forget basketball. Why would this not happen other places? Well, the only other place I would say it could happen would be football. Because football, if you think basketball is good, if you take away the tournament, you're really, really, you know, that's, that is basketball, the NCAA tournament. I mean, the guys lose 99 games and they're still, you know, playing for their app. But football... With the billions of dollars, now the, the basketball tournament gets, I think, $20 billion the next contract they're going to get, okay? 
but football generates zillions of dollars every Saturday from all the 35 power you know, universities. Football is money off the wall. That you just, it's like a Christmas tree when it gets uh, barren and brown and starts dropping on the carpet and you've got to get the sweeper up. That's money. Football is huge, and there are more people involved. You got players up to what ninety-five on a roster. You got coaches into the twenties. I mean, you got specialists. And what else do you have? The money. The money is flowing. It's big. So, so sunny. So, so sunny. Bottom line of all of this for our listeners, international and domestic, uh, regardless of whether somebody goes to jail for a day, a year, and no matter who it is. Do more athletes, student athletes, athletes generally get more revenue out of this as a result or not? Well, if you're asking me, that's a great question. Thank you for interrupting me. Uh, and I mean that sincerely. What I pray happens out of this, and I think it would be a solution, not the complete solution. And it won't be the final solution, but a, a solution. That if they paid the athletes, if they gave them some sort of a stipend over and above that silly thing called, you know, cost of attendance, okay, then you may eliminate a lot of the financial problems that athletes face going in, but also you may eliminate the temptation of some people taking money illicitly. That may happen. I'm not saying it will because society and people are different, okay? You may be a billionaire and want to be a two-billionaire. We understand that. Logic says that's true. But you have to allow the public to understand that these athletes do more then show up on Saturday afternoon or Friday night to play basketball games. You have to understand that we've now bargained them out in their own bodies to another network, and the network is the media. They are bargained out for no pay, nothing. They still go on the field. They still hit their heads against the wall. The, the, the basketball athletes pay for all the scholarships in, in, the, in the terms of the, the NCAA, the swimmers, the yachters, the defensers, and all well and good. But how can they be responsible for everybody's education? And the other thing is the bowl sub, the committee to bowls, they don't even share the money with the universities and scholarships for other people. They're run by individuals. How can bowl promoters get millions of dollars? Now, to answer your question, if money doesn't trickle down to the athletes, I, don't be I believe I'll finally see. I would love to see, and I hope it doesn't come, and that means there's change. The day when the athletes stand, instead of kneeling, instead of saluting, instead of, you know, uh, doing anything, you know, not showing up for class, if they ever not showed up for a ball game, and I'm not saying the kneeling was, uh, I, I commend what they did, is a different subject here. But I'm saying in order to raise attention to the plight of the athlete while they're in universities, if they don't show up to play in one of these bowl games, you know, these final four games, or the NCAA finals, you will find all the partners of the NCAA cancel the contracts. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the power of the athlete. If they don't show up, it'll change in a minute because they have to pay the athletes then. It is, by the way, an incredible perspective from Sonny Vaccaro, who um, nobody could argue has uh, more history and more perspective and more understanding of this area, frankly, than anybody alive. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. The producer, Alex Cohn. Associate producers, Freddie Joyner and Ryan Warner. Assistance provided by Carlos Swadek, Tanner Simpkins, and Ronnie Sokatch. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Calaruso. I'm Rick Haro. Thanks again for listening. See you next time on Keeping Score.